Well, once again, welcome to Valley Lights Church. My name is Bruce Wood. I'm the lead pastor here. And today we're actually concluding a message series called How to Make a Bad Decision. <laughs> and uh, if you need advice on how to make a bad decision, I can give you plenty of examples <laughs> from my own life. And, uh, you know, we, we're looking at this topic not so that you can make more bad decisions. <laughs> it's so that you can avoid them. And uh, there's actually, we're actually been looking at four of the worst decisions made in the Bible. And the reason is because we can find our own decision-making processes in the pages of Scripture, and we make the same mistakes. And uh, actually, you know, it's funny, that, it's funny to call it a mistake, because sometimes we confuse mistakes from bad decisions. And uh, for example, here's a, here's a headline from, uh, from the UK. This, this headline says, uh, Michael Grove, cocaine mistake is a deep regret. <laughs> so, well, was it, was it actually a mistake? Was it an unintentional oops? Or what, did you actually do something and then you got found out? Now it's, now it's a mistake. Or, or you see this kind of thing when athletes, they get caught in doping scandals and they say, oh, it was, it was a mistake. Like, oops, <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Uh, high profile people can they can cheat on their wives, but then they just come out and say, I, I, made, I, made a mis I really made a mistake here. And it's supposed to sound better, but if you're not really owning it, or, or a business person who leaves some of their income off of the report to the IRS, they're like, oops, my mistake. So all of those things, those are examples that are, they're not mistakes, actually. They're bad decisions. And those were things that a lot of times we, we do things intentionally, and without regard for the consequences. And it's really, it makes us feel better when we call them mistakes. Um, but you know, if, if, someone, if somebody high profile is caught in doing something wrong, you can listen to how they respond and the way they respond really determines how effectively they can unwind that mess. And we'll, we'll look a little bit more at that. But during this, this whole message series, we have been looking at these really bad decisions in the Bible. We can, in some ways, it's kind of comforting, honestly, that um, such bad decisions get made in the Bible, and God still uses people. Um, that, that's exciting. But Esau, week one, we looked at how Esau made a really hasty decision, and he focused really only on the short term. He didn't have a good awareness of all the things that could happen, and it cost him a fortune and a lot of spiritual blessing. We looked at King Rehoboam, and how he rejected wise counsel. And that cost him more than half his kingdom. And then last week, we looked at Samson, and he gave in to pressure, and it cost him his life. So in each case, these guys that we've looked at, these stories, they knew what they were doing. These guys knew that what they were doing with eyes was either stupid or wrong or both, and they did it anyway. And I, I, to be totally honest, I can personally identify with each of the guys that we've looked at so far. And God has even convicted me on my bad decision-making when I'm like, you know, looking through the pages of Scripture. And you can find all those messages on our website or our podcast. But today we're looking at a person who was the golden boy. He was the guy that everybody loved. And in a dark moment, he turns into a monster. And I gave a teaser last week. I kind of hinted at who we were talking about. Today our story is from the darkest period of King David's life. And 
I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a quick overview of this story real fast, and then we're going to look at each verse that outlines how this story flows. And I think uh, you might find some ways to identify in this story. All right, so here's what happens. And, and we're going to be reading from 2 Samuel 11, but basically King David, he sends his army out to battle, but he stays home. His eyes wander to a woman bathing on the roof. She's married to somebody else. That's a problem, but he's king. So while the army's out, brings the wife in and he sleeps with her. And then she gets pregnant. Big oops. That's a big mistake right there, right? David has a few failed attempts at covering it up, and then he gets really desperate. The husband is actually one of David's faithful soldiers. So David arranges his death in battle. Husband dies, he's out of the picture. David marries the woman, the baby is born, and everything looks above board. Boom. Problem solved. So that's, that's the story. And so we're going to dive into this. But it's, uh, it's, this is, this, you're going to see, this is really dark. This is just like shockingly dark. Because David, he's the guy that led the nation of Israel into its glory days. Just like the most prosperous, you know, God-fearing days. And, you know, he, he really is honored for his leadership. And he's well-respected. And the decisions that he made in this, this scandal, is, it's criminal. It's really bad. And the story, it kind of reminds me of one of those Dateline exclusives or like a show on 60 Minutes when, when you hear some, some draw-dropping story about somebody famous and you're struggling to reconcile, man, I thought this guy was the hero, this is the star, and then does something criminal. Like, this is despicable behavior. And you're like, whoa, how do, how, do we, how do we merge these things together? How do you go from the brave, courageous shepherd hero who steps up to defend God's honor and stands down a giant who had the whole rest of the army quaking in their boots? How do you go from that? Actually, have you seen the, I don't know if you've ever seen this, the statue of David that Michelangelo created long ago. And uh, it's, it's a statue of David, young and confident. This is kind of in the Goliath days. And really the artist went great lengths in particular to depict the determination in his eyes, to really focus on, man, this, this guy was determined to follow God, to defend his honor, and he was ready to slay any enemies that got in the way. And you know, there's, there's a lot of, so with a, with a slingshot and a few stones, this guy, he defeats the Goliath and he goes on to become the second king of Israel. And like, as I said, this is, there was just one victory after another. Tremendous blessing and so much good. So many people were blessed by his leadership and courageousness. And then things just turned dark for him. And so he's, he was totally despicable in this story. And the truth is, he was both a hero at times and a zero at times. He had these different chapters of his life. And if we're honest, all of us, we have different chapters of our lives. We have a mix of doing right and noble things, and then we have times when we do really what's very dishonorable and sometimes cruel. So there's, there's really no excuse for David's criminal actions. But it's kind of it's hard to even, it's, if you were just to judge him outright, it'd be, it'd be kind of hard to do because we don't actually know what it's like. None of us know what it's like to rule a country with the kind of kingly authority that he had. Really just the ability to command obedience from anybody. 
And there's actually a, a British politician in the 19th century who, an historian, Lord Acton, who's known for this famous quote, maybe you've heard this. He said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Meaning that if you get put in the wrong position, if you get put in a position where you have just unlimited, unchecked, unaccountability for your power, then corruption is probably not that far away. So before we go ahead and just judge David, we need to, we need to maybe get honest with ourselves. Like maybe I, maybe I could get to that point too if I was unchecked. Because we're a mix. You've got a mix of good and negative desires in your heart. Don't fool yourself and say that every desire in your heart is positive and beneficial to other people because it's not. So we're a mix. We're just a mixed bag. And actually we're going to be mixed until we die. So, your bad decisions, and so far, actually, so far, my bad decisions haven't shown up on the nightly news. <laughs> it hasn't got that bad for me yet. There was this one time when we um, set off fireworks in the middle of New Mexico, and we actually did start a fire and then got it out really quick, and we almost made it out of the news, probably. <laughs> that was a bad decision. Um, it was this one time we were driving, we were, like, going to, through the desert, and we went to one of those stops, like, one of those, like, you know, souvenir shops in the middle of nowhere that had like racks and racks of fireworks. And uh, we're like, can we buy these and just set them off in the parking lot? The guy's like, the, he's like, I don't care what you do with them. <laughs> so we did, we set them off. And um, so we, we unintentionally, one rocket went off, caught fire and it was super dry. So we ran over, stomped it out really quick before it spread. And it was actually, it startled me how fast the fire started to grow. And they're like, okay, that was good. Glad we took care of that. And then later when we were continued our drive, we looked and found articles online of people that had set fire in the desert and got thrown in jail and had $50,000, you know, fines and stuff. I'm like, oh my gosh, this was, this was a stupid decision that we just did. Wow. I didn't realize actually how bad this was. So you could, you could draw all kinds of stories out of that one. So that was not a mistake. That was a bad decision. And um, so... Even if your bad decisions don't land you on the news, there are things that David did that got him there that sometimes we do. So if you don't go as far as he does, you actually, we do things. There's elements in his story, in his decision-making. There's things that we got to take out of our approach to life. And that's why we're looking at this. So, um, and you might be thinking, in this story, if you know this story of David, you might be thinking, all right, so what is the one bad decision? Like, how, how do you pick? How do you focus on the bad decision? Because you've got, you've got the fact that he was voyeuristically looking at Bathsheba while she bathed. That was a bad decision. Then he sent someone to find out about her. Not good. He, then he learned that she was married and still brought her in. That was a bad decision. Then he powered up as king, said, I can do what I want, and slept with her. Then he covered up the pregnancy with murder. I mean, where do you start? There's, a, there's actually quite... A catalog of bad decisions. Probably the bad decision that we should start with is the one that led to all the other bad decisions. If we look at the elements of David's despicable decision, here's the very first one. He shunned responsibility. So let's, let's go to this first. We're going to dive in. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, here's what it says. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Okay, so the background on this is 
kings tended to issues, and they would go out um, related to missions of their kingdom during the spring because of, just because of really weather, um, avoiding the winter months. And so when spring came, you could travel to where you needed to go. And so this passage happens at this time, and it's clear that rather than going with his men into war, which is really, the, that was the custom, that was what kings did at that time, and the kings would lead their troops into battle, he just decided to stay home and basically neglected his responsibility as a leader. And this is about 10 years into his kingship. He was enjoying the progress that he made. You know, if you've been in a, in a cushy situation for a while, you can kind of start relaxing and just keep taking it easy and just stop making forward progress. And he, he, just, he just decides, I'm just to enjoy some extra rest. Which means that really all of that energy that he has, all of that time, all that attention, all of that drive from such a capable leader, it was free to go in other places. It was all of, all of those things on his mind. He could just, it could just wander. And so there would be little accountability. All of the soldiers and officers, they were off to war where he should have been. There wasn't anybody asking, hey, where's David? Why isn't David here? Everyone's out doing their work. So instead, his time and energy, instead of really being disciplined and channeled and having his actions accounted for, he was in a situation where his time and his energy was undisciplined, unchanneled, unaccounted for, and he wasn't busy or engaged. So if you, if you were to stop and reflect on your, some of your core responsibilities in life, you've got things that you've got to keep a, a really firm grip on, mentally and spiritually, physically, emotionally, other things that you just need to do to move your work forward or your family forward or your life forward. You've got to, you really have to have a strong grip on your own responsibilities. We all do. And we got to get honest. Like, is there, is there, is there any time or right now, am I, am I just kind of loosening my grip? I'm just kind of just going, taking it easy. If we get honest, there's times when we got to get a firm grip. We can't loosen our grip on our core responsibilities like David did. It becomes a setup for us. The second element of his really bad decision is that he made himself vulnerable. Second Samuel, the, the, actually the, the second verse, it says, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw the woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So David, he's got time to burn. <laughs> he's just got time for an evening stroll. He went on the roof and he probably knew what he might find if he went up there. So here's David, unaccountable, with some extra time, and he's immediately tempted. His power, combined with his lack of responsibility, it really set him up, him up to become vulnerable. The word vulnerable means, it actually comes from a Latin word, but it means to, to, to be able to be wounded. So he's just walking around with basically with no armor on, just able to get uh, severely tempted and taken out by the enemy. He could have realized, you know what, oof, this, I'm, I'm walking into danger here. Actually, I'm, I'm in a place that nobody knows about it. I, I need to shore things up. But he didn't. He proceeded in the wrong direction. And David avoided the responsibility tied to his power and position. So we, again, we ask ourselves, well, when does this happen to me? When am I most vulnerable? What time of day do I most get tempted to let go of my responsibilities? What, what locations, what, where are the places and those habits and those things in my life where I'm, ah, this is not good for me. I know this, is, I'm, I'm kind of I'm skating on thin ice and I know this isn't good. 
Are there times when you're alone, when you're vulnerable to attack and temptation? We just, sometimes we just walk right into it. And sometimes we know we're there and we just stay there or keep walking like David did. And then third, this is the third aspect about his really, really bad decision is that he sinned and then he tried really hard to cover it up. Like, like that's ever been a good strategy for anybody in life ever is to cover it up. So what David did, it wasn't a mistake. He sinned. And here's what it is. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So the chick is married, dude. So we, we, all, we all know who she's married to. But David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. So after that, he sends her home and then she sends word back that she's pregnant. Ah! She sends word to David. The problem, here's the problem. Uriah is off at war and Bathsheba's belly is starting to grow. And you know what though? Like they didn't have, they didn't have um, all the DNA testing and stuff like that. If, if it were possible for Uriah to come home and sleep with his own wife, it would appear like the baby's theirs and David could get off scot-free. So David's in this pickle where it's going to become really obvious that something happened. And this really could have been the moment where he could have just called it and said, I, I, I stepped across a major line here. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He sends for the husband, bring Uriah back from the battle, it says, so he can enjoy some intimate time with his wife, and it will appear like the baby is there. So Uriah comes back, but since the other soldiers are fighting a war, this dude doesn't want to dishonor the sacrifice that his troops are making, so he doesn't go into his wife. He says, no, like, why should I, why should I be the only one to get extra privilege when everyone else is working hard? Man, that's a good guy right there. Like, geez, he's got some morals. And so he sleeps, he sleeps with the servants. So like David's like, duh! <laughs> David tries to get him drunk. This is cover-up attempt number two. He's like, what if I get him drunk? Okay, so now, you know, then of course he'll go in with his wife. Man, it doesn't work. He's, this, even the drunk version of this guy is still noble enough to stay outside. So this is where David takes it to a criminal level. In the morning, here's what it says, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. This is the commander of the armies. And he sent it with Uriah, which is crazy that Uriah is carrying this note. In the note, it says, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So this scripting, it's, it feels like it's like a tragic movie. Like this would be like a really clever plot that someone would write in a movie that you would make that you'd have the guy carry his own death warrant not know about it. This really happened. So Uriah, he carries the death wish in his hand and he's got no idea. So in verse 16, here's what it says. When, uh, so while Joab had the city under siege, which, so here, here's actually what they were doing. They were a siege is when you, you block all the supplies to the enemy and it wears them down over a long period of time. That's what they were doing. And that probably in this case was a good strategy. So just wait them out, wait out the enemy. So it's interesting, here comes this news. He put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. Another reason to do a siege is you don't want to waste men unnecessarily if you can just wait people out. So the, while the men of the city came out and they fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. 
So this situation is kind of like, the fact that they sent men up to the city wall early, it's kind of like the beach of, beach of Normandy. Those initial wave of soldiers never had a chance. It was just crazy, just out of control, deadly to be there. So it was Uriah and actually not only him, but a lot of other people that died. And there's this great resource I have. It's called the Action Bible. It's um, a comic book version of the Bible that I read with my kids, and I really love it. Sometimes I do my own daily devotions from the Action Bible with my kids because I love it so much. And uh, actually, he adds a little bit of dialogue in this comic story. And uh, Joab orders Uriah to attack the main gate. And he adds this. He says, he has um, Uriah respond. He says, attack the main gate. That's the best defended part of the city. What, what about the plans for the siege? And Joab says, your king has commanded you. And then it shows, uh, there's an, a drawing of Uriah with his sword held high. And he says, follow me, men. We have pledged the king our loyalty. And today we, he asks for our strength. We will fight for the honor of our king and our God. And so he goes. He actually obeys these orders. And there's, um, oh, this is one of the pictures. It says, uh, several valuable soldiers are easily killed. And this, this was an obviously foolish military maneuver. And it probably made no sense to those guys. So, jump back into the Bible. It's in verse 23, it says, The messenger sent to David, here's the report of the war. The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Here's David's response. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Come on, man. This is awful. So it says, verse 26, When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Uriah finds out he's dead. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So, a few things we can take away from this. One is that covering up sin multiplies our troubles. I don't know if you've ever tried this whole like cover-up strategy thing or like the lie to get out of the first lie thing. That never goes well. In fact, it makes things worse. And in David's case, it went from bad to really bad to horrible. Really, really bad. And, but here's the, here's the thing, though. If we're honest, we are tempted to do this. You're, you know, when you do something wrong or if you make someone upset or if you don't want to deal with that problem, you're the temptation is, how about I just cover it up or how about I just avoid it? We all, that's instinctive. And let's just take, you know, take note. It's going to make things worse <laughs> if we don't deal with it head on. So three cover-up attempts. Bring Uriah back, didn't work. Get him drunk, didn't work. Let's just have him killed. That one worked. All the while, while this is happening, though, you got to imagine that trust in David's leadership is probably crumbling. Because how could Bathsheba, who's the new wife, actually trust David after all this stuff? How, you know, like, that's a great way to start a marriage. How could Joab, his commander, trust David just like he dispenses with soldiers? How can all the other people in and around the palace at the time of this wrongdoing 
How could they trust their leader? This act that David did was a major destabilizer for David moving forward. Had big impact on his family, his relationships, friendships, and worse, worse than all of that, that little line that we read right at the end. God was not amused by this at all. It wasn't until David was confronted by Nathan, one of God's prophets, that he did finally admit it. He actually had him cornered in this, uh, like, it was like a tricky word game that Nathan used to actually bring the truth out. And David repented, but he, he paid a serious price, and so did his family line. So, you know, with a story like this, you could launch into all kinds of topics and messages and takeaways. Like, how does God's grace work? Because this really is an example of God's grace in a really extreme way, because God ultimately blessed David and speaks well of David at the end of his life. And David has this tremendous legacy. God's grace to David, it almost doesn't make sense to us because Jesus Christ came out of the line of David. In fact, it says, um, Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David. And so, in a way, David's name comes up in an honorable way still. Like, Man, how, how is that even possible? That doesn't even make sense. David's story highlights how we're, none of us are ever too far removed from the grace of God or out of the reach of his love. So if you or somebody that you know has really blown it big time, well, you can find hope in David's story. But here's the thing, though. It's not without consequences. Sin carries consequence, and, and God does offer us grace, which is amazing. Grace is undeserved favor. We get something great that we, don't, we should have never got. For all of us, what we do deserve is punishment eternally to die and be separated from God and everything good forever. But instead, we receive mercy and forgiveness when we put our faith in him. That's incredible. But if we don't realize that we can do the same kinds of things that David did. And if, if all we do, you read a story, if you read, it's really easy. For, okay, it's easy to read a story like that and be like, what a fool. That's probably, you know, even my first reaction. You read a story like that. How could anyone be so off track? But if we don't realize we can do those things or things that lead up to those actions, then we're, we're like the, the older brother in the prodigal story. We just judge. Because what we tend to think is, you know, that's awful, but the things that I've done, they're just mistakes. <laughs> I mean, I didn't really mean to step across the line. Not really a sinner like that. We too, the, the reality is that we all sin. And we all can sin royally. And we need to understand our vulnerabilities in life so that we can protect ourselves from doing serious damage. So we all have the ability to multiply the problems by trying to cover them up and trying to dodge responsibility before God. So even though David's family paid an immediate price, it does say that Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David. And there's a lot of blessing. We see that you know, if, if it was the case that God would only work through perfect people, he would never accomplish anything through us because you can't find any perfect people. Instead, he graciously forgives and doesn't give up on those who follow him. He gives us a brand new identity. Actually, Romans 5.8 brings a lot of hope along these lines. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. What a blessing. So with the grace of God as our backdrop, let's look at how can we avoid compromise? How can we avoid getting into a situation like David did? 
here's one thing that we, we can do. We, can, we need to be diligent. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. Did you know that working hard actually protects us from harm and bad decision making? The word diligent in the original language means sharp and determined. If you approach your responsibilities in a really sharp, determined way, man, if you've got a laser focus on what needs to get done at, at, my, at my house, I'm focused. At work, I'm focused. In my relationships, to grow my marriage, to grow my kids, to handle my money well, I am focused and I'm determined. Actually, that, there's a lot of blessing that comes from that. It's easy to kind of get lazy in any one of those areas. When we get into laziness or procrastination, man, we can get off track and we can go down a harmful path in our decisions. Another way to avoid compromise is don't make yourself vulnerable. Proverbs 5, 7 through 10. Um, there's a passage that's just referenced on your handout there, but that's a passage that's uh, it's related to adultery as, as the context. And it's basically, it's don't even go near the adulterer's house. Instead, we need to build a hedge of protection between us and the temptation. Sometimes we, we have a way of walking on the edge of a cliff, and you're like getting close, and you're like, I, I, haven't, actually, I, actually, I haven't actually done it yet, and I'm not going to. But you shouldn't even be near the cliff. You should be way like, in, you should be like so far away this from the temptation that you can't even see <laughs> Uh, the edge of the cliff. That's where we need to be. We have so, we have, I don't know why, we have such a temptation to be so close to the edge. There's really no need to prove how strong you are by getting close to temptation. We shouldn't put ourselves in situations where we are unnecessarily leave ourselves open to being harmed. James White, a pastor and author, where the idea for this series came from, he describes three things that tend to make us vulnerable. And we've got to avoid these. And by the way, vulnerable, sometimes people use that in terms of in relationships. And there's a, um, there's a, a way of being open and honest with people that allows people to see. You know, as your trust in relationships grows, we need to become more open. And the more open you become with people, certainly you can be more open to being hurt and damaged. And there's a level of that that's necessary. But this is a, a vulnerability to temptation that's totally different from that. And so here's something we have, we, one thing we have to avoid is restless energy. Proverbs 21, 25 says, the sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. So when we're not busy doing what we should be doing, we tend to get into trouble. You're like, I know I need to work hard and I just need to push through a little bit longer, but I'm just, I'm just gonna slack off. I don't know if you've ever made a bad decision because you were bored <laughs> or didn't have enough to do. Um, or, you know, we, tend, we, we all tend to eat more when we're bored, too. I don't know, like, if you ever tried to do a diet, when, when is, the e is, easy, is it easier to stick to a diet when you're busy or when you're just, like, laying around in front of the refrigerator? <laughs> Boredom feeds desire. So if we have this restless energy, that's the opposite of diligence. Too much time on our hands is not good, especially because if, if it's because we're ignoring the things we ought to do. The second thing that, that puts us in a vulnerable place is emotional depletion. Now, I don't know right now your level of like depletion. I don't know if you feel stressed or exhausted. I don't know if you feel drained or worn out or how, however, you, you probably feel those ways. I don't know which phrase you use to describe how you feel. But when you are that way, when you're just, man, I'm just out of gas. I just, ah, I'm just depleted. 
then we tend to be vulnerable in those times. Because when you're depleted, you can't really pick up your shield in a fight. You don't really swing your sword all that strongly. It's crucial that when we are depleted that we've got to find a way to, to get filled back up and in, in the right way. That's actually one of the reasons that God established the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest that God built into the order of creation. God rested on the seventh day to set an example. God didn't get tired out and like he needed a break. <laughs> but he, he actually did that as an example to us. God made us, uh, God made us to need a good rest to recharge about once a week. Um, so there, there's maybe some gauges in your life that you might pay attention to. If, if any of your gauges are getting low, maybe three areas in particular, physical, spiritual, and emotional. If in any of those categories, you're just, you're, the, the fuel tank is empty, um, that, that may be a troubling place to be. If your physical gauge is low, maybe you need to get some sleep, do some exercise, or start eating more healthy. If you're spiritual, if you're feeling depleted that way, spend time with the Lord. Really carve that out. Or spend time with some Christians who can encourage you. Maybe you're feeling discouraged. and You just, man, many times that I'm discouraged, God's Word and then other people talking me through it is a big thing that helps bring me back up to having a firm grip. Or emotionally, if you're depleted, you may need to slow down, focus on rest and renewal, getting your mind on the right things. The third thing to watch out for that, that can make us vulnerable is refusing to admit weakness. Proverbs 10.9, the man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. Integrity means to be blameless. If you're blameless, it means no one can point a finger at you. It's like uh, you know, somebody could look at your internet history and they're like, man, I can't find anything on this guy. He's squeaky clean. <laughs> that's, that's what it means to walk blameless. Or for us in our lives, or, or for you know, maybe, you know, our spouses sometimes can say like, oh, I, I know something that he did. Uh, you know, there's people that are close to us that maybe know things, but to be blameless either means nobody can point a finger or I have messed up, but I've cleaned it up and I've dealt with it thoroughly. I haven't, I haven't hidden anything. I haven't, you know, tried to sneak around the responsibility I'm dealt with. So now I'm blameless again. Nobody can point a finger. Nobody's perfect, but we do need to clean up when we mess up. Really, there, there's security in the Lord that when we, man, it's actually better for us to admit, hey, I've got weaknesses, and, and I've got areas of struggle. Man, I, where it's really easy for me to sin in this way, and I need God's grace. I really need His help. So that brings us to this final part of David's life. And finally, and this is actually a turning point for David. This is actually where a lot of hope comes in David's story. Finally, if you compromise, confess. If you have compromised in any way, confess. David did some despicable criminal things. And he could never erase the wrong that, that he did. But God can. God can erase the wrong. In the end, he didn't run and make excuses. He fully and completely owned up to his sin. Sometimes I can admit my wrong and my sin, but like not quite all the way. I'm like, eh, you know, it was mostly wrong what I did, but... I don't want to take full responsibility. Like, you kind of have your part too. And like, you can tell if somebody hasn't fully owned it. And David did it. He totally and fully owned it. He didn't try, he's like, all right, you can totally skewer me, just hiding nothing. And in fact, there's a psalm that he wrote 
that reflects this time, Psalm 51. It, it begins like this, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Here's what David wrote. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The idea of sin being totally blotted out, I was actually, like, when I was meditating on these verses this week, I was thinking, like, is it possible for God to actually forget and erase our sin? Because isn't he all-knowing? Like, wouldn't he still know <laughs> the things that have happened? But there is a, there is a way when, when he says that he, he blots out our transgression or he, he chooses to forget or he puts our sin as far away from us as the East is from the West. It's like God has made a conscious decision to not remember it, to overlook it, to not bring it up, and to see us without that. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible that God would do that. Like it says here, wash me, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What a feeling to be cleansed before God. David came to Nathan. He came clean. And more importantly, David came clean to God. So if you've blown it in a small way or a big way, you're not forever tainted by your sin. You can be washed clean and God can renew your life. Here's a final thing you can fill in. Confessing sin brings forgiveness and freedom. It is so difficult to confess our sin and to come clean. Another pastor and author from Georgia says like this, if, if we just settle for merely calling ourselves mistakers, I'm just, I made a mistake, my bad. Then if, if we never admit that we're sinners, then we'll never admit our need for a savior. We need to be saved from our sin that we intentionally do. So if you've made a bad decision, the most important and first step in responding is to admit you're wrong and to call it what it is, just call it sin. Sin is the word that describes what separates us from God. And actually, the scary thing is that elsewhere in Isaiah, it says, if we sin and we just let it go unacknowledged, it says God, he, doesn't, he, he can't see us. In fact, he hides his face from us. He just, there's, there, sin becomes a barrier that totally blocks us from God, and that's a scary place to be. The word sin means to act contrary to the will and the law of God. And so when we step outside of moral boundaries to get what we want, and just do what we feel, regardless of what's right, that's sin. The Bible says that unless we admit our sin, we never experience God's forgiveness because, well, God wouldn't need to forgive a mistake. But man, it just feels a lot easier to say, I made a mistake, than to say, I'm a sinner. So what I listen, you know, if you ever see like those high profile people and they made a mistake, and they're caught in a scandal, Sometimes, every once in a while, one of those guys will take full responsibility. But if they don't own it, then you think, I just think, man, this story is not going to end well. It's probably going to happen again, or that family is going to totally fall apart if, if, if there's really not a sense of ownership there. And you never really know. But 1 John 1.9 gives us some confidence. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This verse has brought me tremendous comfort. It's one that I've memorized long ago and just comes back. Really brings me a lot of comfort. So, admitting your sin also, here's the other good thing. If you do admit your sin, you get the other benefit of rebuilding trust with people. Because usually that sin 
breaks something in your relationships with people, that's really, really hard to repair. Confessing is really the only way to start rebuilding the trust. When we confess, it increases our credibility because the people know that I know that I've done wrong. So when we confess, God begins to work for us, not against us. So look at these themes. Here's just a summary from this lesson from David's life. It says, uh, covering up sin magnifies and really multiplies our trouble. And that's the tendency we all have. But the next line is that confessing sin brings forgiveness and freedom. So as we wrap up, you might consider taking one of these next steps. Um, you can find those on your handout as well. But maybe you'd consider reading Psalm 51 this week and record some key insights. Maybe find some encouragement from God as you read that. Another next step might be to ask God, show me any vulnerabilities that I have. We've all got weak moments. We've got situations that we put ourselves in that we shouldn't be. Maybe pray and ask God. He'd speak to you about those things. Or maybe there's a next step that's already on your mind. Some way to respond or an action to take. And maybe you know there's something you need to do this week. Next week, we're going to start a brand new series. So we've concluded this four-week series on these really bad decisions. And uh, next week, our message series is called Momentum. And I'm excited about this series because we're going to basically ask the question, why do, we, why do we gather every Sunday? Why do you guys sit here? Why is it worth coming here every Sunday? Actually, what can be accomplished by a group of people that are really engaged in seeing God's kingdom go forward? What if we are all pulling hard and the momentum of our church increases? What about the impact of that? So I'm really excited. I hope you join us for the start of that series. We'll have donuts in the morning as a way to kick it off, a fun sugary boost to get going. <laughs> and um, let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy and it really is incredibly difficult to confess and come clean. We've got a lot of pride. We've got a lot of resistance. And sometimes we're committed to doing the old way still. And we need to let go of that. But I pray, Lord, that you give us the courage and the help to walk in purity. What a joy it is to walk blameless before you. I thank you that you make that possibility available to us. Thank you for those that are gathered here. Thank you that you've led each one here. I pray that you'd cause our church to grow strong in a way that honors you and helps many more people find you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.